Amen. Thank you, Marcus. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Our passage this morning is Mark chapter 2, 23 to chapter 3, verse 6. Let me read that passage and I'll pray one more time. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Please pray with me. God, your law is perfect and gives life to the soul. Your testimony is sure and it makes wise the simple. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you come and give us life and make us wise through your word. Help me as I preach. Help us as we listen. Glorify your name in our midst this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have read Victor Hugo's masterpiece, Les Miserables, or perhaps more likely if you've seen the musical, you'll be familiar with the two characters, Jean Valjean and Inspector Javert. Jean Valjean is a former lawbreaker turned honest businessman, and Javert is a French police inspector with a rigid sense of justice who's trying to track down Jean Valjean and imprison him for breaking the law years and years ago. Well, throughout the story, there are several times when Valjean and Javert cross paths. And when they meet each other, they feel very differently about how to handle Valjean's breach of the law. Javert wants to throw Valjean back into jail. He has broken the law, and to jail he must go. But Valjean has become a genuinely changed man. And several people are, at various points, dependent on Jean Valjean to stay alive. In the musical, twice, Valjean and Javert meet in a moment of crisis, and Valjean says he's willing to go to jail if only he'll be allowed to help those who are depending on him first. But Javert won't budge. 
the clash between Valjean and Javert in the hands of the storytellers becomes much more than a theoretical question of the law. Right? This clash of opinions about the law in Les Mis, it ends up revealing that Valjean and Javert are two very different people with two very different hearts, two very different approaches to life. If you will, two different ways to find rest. Well, in our passage this morning from Mark's gospel, there are no French police or former felons. No one sings any musical numbers. But we do have a series of disputes about God's law. Now, in our passage, we have two disagreements between Jesus and the Pharisees over what it's lawful to do on the Sabbath day, the day of rest. And in these disputes, uh, we see again revealed two very different heart postures, two very different kinds of religion, two very different ways of relating to God's law, two very different ways of pursuing Sabbath rest. So what I want us to do in our time together this morning is try to understand from this passage how we ought to view and relate to God's law. I'm using that term law pretty broadly. I think what we see in this passage really applies to how we should view all of God's word. So as we walk through the passage, I want us to see five truths about God's law. That'll serve as our outline this morning. Five truths from this passage about God's law and really about God's word entirely. So first, we see from this passage that God's law rules. God's law rules, or to put it another way, God's law is authoritative. So the reason that we know that that's true is because that's how Jesus views God's law in this passage. He sees it as authoritative. Let me show you that from the text of Scripture. There in chapter 2, verse 23, we read that Jesus and his disciples are walking along, probably still in Capernaum, uh, and they begin to pass through the grain fields, probably fields of wheat. Commentators point out that this episode probably wouldn't, would have happened in May or June. That's when wheat was harvestable in Israel. Uh, and as Jesus and his disciples are passing through the grain fields, the disciples start to snack on some of the grain. Luke tells us that what they're doing is they're picking heads of wheat uh, by their hand, and they're sort of rubbing them together to separate the edible bit of the wheat from the sort of inedible husk on the outside and sort of snacking on the bits of wheat. So that might sound to us like the disciples are stealing. But what the disciples are doing is very clearly allowed by God's law, and it's also within common social courtesy of that day. So in Deuteronomy 23, 25, we read this. This is God's law. It says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So it's something like if you go to your neighbor's house and you use their dish soap to wash your hands, right? You haven't stolen anything. Right? That's common courtesy. You can have a little soap. But if you sort of take the soap dispenser with you, you've stolen, right? Similarly, if you take grain with your hand, the amount is negligible. But if you start, get your sickle out and harvesting, it's a, like theft. So what Jesus' disciples are doing is just fine. You notice the Pharisees find fault with when 
they're doing it. There in verse 24, we read the, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that one of the Ten Commandments, which God gave to his people Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai, was to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. This is what the commandment said in Exodus chapter 20. It said, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. The commandment goes on to explain that Israel's rhythm of working and resting, six and one, is patterned after God's own rhythm of work and then rest in the creation of the world. So herein lies the controversy. God's law says, on the Sabbath, you shall not do any work. And the Pharisees, for reasons that we'll get into, see the disciples sort of grain snacking as a form of work. And so they question Jesus. Well, for our first point here, what we need to notice is how Jesus does not respond to the Pharisees. Jesus does not say to the Pharisees, guys, you just need to chill out about the whole law thing, okay? Like, I mean, God's law is important, but it's not that important, okay? You're taking devotion to God's law too seriously. That's not how Jesus responds to the Pharisees here. Jesus doesn't fault the Pharisees for being serious about God's word. Jesus faults the Pharisees for being wrong about God's word. In fact, look how Jesus answers the Pharisees there in verse 25. He says to them, have you never read? In other words, to defend his disciples' actions, Jesus goes where? To the Bible. He tells them a Bible story. The Pharisees come to Jesus with a moral problem. And how does Jesus settle the question? Well, he could have said, guys, I'm the son of God. Take my word for it. It's fine. But instead, he goes to the scriptures because they are authoritative. God's law rules. A correct appeal to the scriptures is a winning argument in Jesus' book. I think it's important for us to see that at the outset so that we don't misunderstand what's going on here. So in this passage, we see the Pharisees holding to a sort of restrictive set of rules, uh, which they think are based in Scripture, and Jesus has this gracious view that disregards those rules. So it might be tempting for us to be sort of sloppy in our thinking and to view Jesus as kind of the poster child for not taking the rules too seriously. Right? You can see how someone might say, right, I don't want to I don't want to be a Pharisee, so I'm just going to play fast and loose with what the Bible actually says and, and be a little permissive like Jesus is, except that's not at all how Jesus is in this passage. This is not a story about the Pharisees with the Bible versus Jesus, the champion of progressive liberty, right? This is Jesus correcting the Pharisees about what the Bible says and means. For Jesus, the first thing we need to see about God's law is that God's law rules. It is authoritative. Second thing we need to see about Jesus' view of God's law. First, God's law rules. Second, God's law doesn't need our extra rules. 
God's law doesn't need our extra rules. So there's a reason the Pharisees are accusing Jesus' disciples of working on the Sabbath so confidently when all the disciples are doing is picking and sort of rubbing grain in their hands while they walk. So historical sources indicate that the Pharisees had by this time already developed a very extensive list of rules about exactly what did and did not constitute work on the Sabbath. So this is a quote from the Mishnah, a second century Jewish writing, which we believe to reflect oral tradition that was around in the time of Jesus. Uh, And this is what the Mishnah says about the Sabbath day. I shortened this quote to fit it into the sermon. It says, the primary categories of labor prohibited on the Shabbat, which number 40 less one, or 39. One who sows, one who plows, one who reaps, one who gathers, one who threshes, one who winnows, one who selects the inedible from the edible, one who grinds, one who sifts, one who kneads, one who bakes, one who shears, one who whitens, one who combs, one who dyes, one who spins, one who stretches wool, and one who weaves two threads, one who severs two threads, one who ties a knot, one who unties a knot, one who sews two stitches with a needle, as well as one who tears a fabric in order to sew two stitches, one who traps a deer, slaughters it, flays it, salts it, tans its hide, smooths it, cuts it, one who writes two letters. You write two letters. And according to the Pharisees, you've worked on the Sabbath. One who erases in order to write two letters, one who builds, one who dismantles, one who extinguishes a fire, one who kindles a fire, that actually was in God's law, no kindling of the fire, that was actually in the Bible of all those 39. One who strikes a blow with a hammer, and one who carries out an object from domain to domain. No to all of those things. So according to these expanded law about God's law, It turns out that what the disciples are doing by separating the edible kernel from the inedible husk is work. They are working on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees' extra rules. Now, we do want to be careful here before we condemn the Pharisees, because as we've seen, it's very important to take God's law seriously. And it can be good to have sort of a systematic approach to God's word. But it's noteworthy that here and in the next episode and in the passage we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus is not impressed by the people who add rules to God's law. Jesus is all about thoughtfully applying God's law to our lives. You can't read the Gospels and not see that. That is a different thing then coming up with extra systems of rules around God's rules, and then judging other people by those standards. We talked about this two weeks ago when we saw that the Pharisees objected to Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Brothers and sisters, I think we can often be tempted to judge other people for breaking rules that aren't actually God's rules. We take God's good, wise law, we take his clear priorities, and we come up with our own unspoken rules about how to talk, how to dress, how to parent, how to educate our kids, how to relate to alcohol, 
how to have a quiet time, how exactly a church service ought to be structured, how many church meetings you need to go to per week to be really holy, how to relate to culture. And you know what? It is important to think carefully and biblically about all of those things. This passage is not meant to encourage us to be unwise or cavalier. But Jesus makes really clear to the Pharisees here, God doesn't welcome our judging other people by our additions to his law. So I said this two weeks ago. I want to say it again. This does not mean that we can never lovingly, humbly speak to a brother or sister if what we think they're doing is unwise, if we think what they're doing is unwise. This does not mean that we're never going to have to apply God's word to ourselves with rules or to those directly under our authority. Right? So if you have bedtime for your kids that's not in the Bible, that's not Pharisaism, right? That's a godly use of authority. But this does mean that we should not judge others for breaking, nor should we feel superior about ourselves for keeping extra rules surrounding God's rules. I think sometimes the temptation that's sort of less obvious is not to judge others, at least out loud, for what they do, but to have sort of a, a sense that I'm a cut above everyone else because I'm doing stuff that God didn't even command me to do. Remember the Pharisee from Jesus' parable? What does he brag to God about? That he loved the Lord with all his heart and his neighbor as himself? No, he brags about fasting twice a week. Had God commanded him to do that? No. Was he welcome to do it? Sure. Did it entitle him to a sense of self-righteousness above other people? No. We should not feel superior about ourselves for keeping extra rules surrounding God's rules. We should be on guard in ourselves uh, against judgmental attitudes that condemn other believers for doing things different than the way that we do them. For Jesus, God's law rules, and God's law doesn't need our extra rules. The third thing we see about God's law in this passage is that God's law is three-dimensional, or if you like, it's nuanced, or it's complex. So look there at the substance of Jesus' response. Jesus has responded to the Pharisees. What does he actually say there in verses 25 and 26? Those verses say, And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So in defense of his disciples, picking and eating grain on the Sabbath, Jesus cites a story from the Old Testament in which King David is on the run for his life from Saul. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In that story, David stops by the house of God, very likely on a Sabbath day, and he asks the priest for some bread to feed his men on his mission. And the priest says, I don't have any bread. The only bread here is the holy bread, or the bread of the presence, which is used for tabernacle worship. And the law says that this bread is for the priest, but if you and your men are ritually holy, if you haven't been sleeping around, then you can have it. And David says, we are holy, give it to us. 
It seems like this would have happened on a Sabbath day because that's the day that the bread would have been replaced with fresh loaves. So it seems like David is getting sort of the bread that was just taken off the table as fresh loaves were replaced. So why does Jesus think that this story justifies his disciples' behavior? Well, in part, it seems like Jesus is pointing out that discerning what God's law requires can sometimes be more complex than a simple one-step process, right? Sometimes you can figure out the right thing to do by simply applying a really straightforward Bible verse. In fact, maybe most of the time you can figure out the right thing to do this way, right? You're tempted to lie in order to cover up a mistake that you've made. It's not that you're hiding Jews in the Holocaust and you lie the not. You're tempted to lie to cover up a mistake that you made. And you remember that in Proverbs chapter 6, it says that God hates a lying tongue. And in a simple one-step process, you say, huh, I should not lie. Don't lie, right? Sometimes, most of the time, it's that simple. Sometimes it can be complex to apply God's word to the situations we face. Sometimes it's not a simple one-step process. As Jesus seems to be pointing out, God's law contained a ceremonial regulation about what to do with the bread of the presence. The book of Leviticus said, the bread is for the priests. That's really all it said. It didn't say, under no circumstances shall anyone else ever partake of the bread. It just said, the bread is for the priests. Leviticus didn't say exactly how to handle a scenario in which God's anointed king is in dire straits and there's no other bread around and the king and his men are ritually holy and the priest whose the bread is is willing to give it to them. Right? The Leviticus didn't cover that contingency. And so Jesus tells the story about King David to indicate that in that case, the authority and the needs of the anointed king, hint, hint, take priority over this ceremonial regulation. By the way, what is Jesus implying about himself by comparing himself to anointed King David? So you see, Jesus is not doing a sort of flat application of the rules without any regard to the intent of those rules or without taking into account what the whole of Scripture says. So in our own thinking about God's Word and how it applies to us, many, many times the way that the Bible applies to us will be really straightforward and simple. And I'm not encouraging us to use fancy thinking tricks to maneuver out from under obedience. But we also need to be prepared to use nuance in how we apply God's word and to think about all that God's word says as we discern how to apply it. I think one clear example of the, the sort of need for careful thinking about how God's word applies to us is actually this very issue of the Sabbath command. So what does the Sabbath command have to do with Christians today? How do we relate to the Sabbath command? The Bible's very, very clear that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, the way that Old Testament laws apply to New Testament believers changes in some ways. So for example, New Testament books like Galatians and Hebrews teach very clearly that the civil or political and the ritual or ceremonial portions of the law of Moses 
Don't bind believers in the same way because Christ has fulfilled all that those laws pointed to. So, for example, Christians don't need to follow the dietary restrictions in the law of Moses because Jesus has made them clean. So how should we think about the Sabbath command? Are New Testament Christians required to observe the weekly Sabbath? It's worth noting that godly, thoughtful believers disagree very widely on this. May God be gracious to us. If I'm getting this wrong, I don't think I am, but that's the thing about being wrong. You don't think you're wrong when you're wrong. So the scriptures appear to me to teach that Christians are not morally required to observe a weekly Sabbath. For one thing, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that Sunday has become the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is Saturday. There does seem to be kind of a, a biblical theological trajectory that connects the Old Testament Sabbath with the Lord's Day, which is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible does call Sunday the Lord's Day. And we do see corporate worship modeled on the Lord's Day. So that is certainly biblical that we're gathering on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But there's nothing in the Bible or in the history of the early church that makes me think that God wants us to sort of take the things that he said to Jews about the Sabbath, kind of dial them back a little bit, and then apply them to Sunday, Ah, but you say it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? So surely it has to be binding because it's one of the Ten Commandments. Well, first, I don't think that's exactly how the Ten Commandments work. Uh, It's very interesting. All nine of the other Ten Commandments are reiterated as morally binding in the New Testament. So do not murder, repeat it in the New Testament. And certainly the Ten Commandments reveal to us God's character, But I don't think that we can infer from the Sabbath day's place in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments that it is necessarily morally binding on us in anything like the same way. So let me just give you three quick takeaways from the Sabbath command really quickly. So first, this is the main thing to say about the Sabbath in the Bible. Jesus is bringing his people to the eternal Sabbath for which we were created. That's clear from the Hebrews reading that Christina read for us. That's the first takeaway. Jesus is bringing us to eternal rest. Second, second takeaway, regular rest, even weekly rest, is really, really wise. Even, it's not, even if it's not a moral sin uh, to not observe uh, the Sabbath. Regular rest is really, really wise as modeled for us by the Sabbath commandment. And the third thing to say about the Sabbath is don't judge your neighbor for what he does or doesn't do on any particular day. So for, forsaking the assembly, right, just not coming to church habitually to worship, that's clearly an issue. That's disobedience to God's clear command. But beyond that, the clearest example that I can find of a command about the Sabbath for New Testament believers It's in Colossians chapter 2, and it says this. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
So what we see from the way that Jesus himself handles the Sabbath command in this passage before his death and resurrection, while it's still applicable to the covenant people of God in an Old Testament way, and from what we see as about the New Testament's teaching on the Sabbath as a whole, God's law is three-dimensional. We often need to think about it carefully and from more than one angle in order to apply it well. That's the third feature of God's law in this passage. It's three-dimensional or nuanced. A fourth thing we see about Jesus' view of God's law is that God's law is good. More specifically, God's law is good for us. Jesus wraps up this first Sabbath controversy about the grain uh, with two comments in verses 27 and 28. In verse 28, Jesus says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Lord willing, we'll come back to that. The general principle Jesus gives is there in verse 27. It says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is here reminding the Pharisees that the point of the Sabbath was not to burden and enslave mankind. It was to bless mankind. Now, certainly God intended his people to take all of his commands very seriously. But the reason that he gave them this command was in order to do them good. Exodus chapter 23, 12 says... The purpose of the Sabbath was in order to bring refreshment after a long day of work. What a kind command of God that he would command us to refresh ourselves. I love this passage from the end of Deuteronomy chapter 6 in which Moses is instructing Israel how to explain the significance of the law to their children. So listen to this from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 20 to 24. Moses says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. In other words, before you talk about God's commands, you have to talk about his saving grace. The passage concludes, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. Brothers and sisters, God gives us his law for our good. The Sabbath command is just one example of that. The God who commands is the God who loves. He commands for our good as the one who knows what is good for us. So Christian, is there a particular part of God's law that you're really struggling to obey. By the way, we all struggle to obey God's law. How would it change your fight for obedience if you really believed that what God commands is good for you? 
that what God calls you to leads to blessing, leads to flourishing. The Pharisees had lost sight of the fact that God's law was a gift, and so they turned it into a set of shackles, a series of hoops uh, to jump through to establish their own righteousness. In their hands, the law had ceased to be good. We also see the goodness of God's law in the second half of this passage in chapter 3. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. It says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Side note, if your main relationship to God's law is that you use it to watch for other people's mistakes so that you can pounce on them, that's not good. Verse 3, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here, literally, come here into the middle. Jesus is about to make a scene. Verse 4, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Can you see the obvious goodness in Jesus' understanding of the law? Jesus is deadly serious about God's law. He is all about obedience. Jesus is in no way setting aside God's law. Jesus is also like, guys, are you not on team, let's heal the disabled man? Right? Because I'm on team, let them have the snack and let them heal the disabled man. Right? Can you see the evident goodness in Jesus' interpretation of the law? He correctly reads God's law in light of the goodness and redemptive purpose of the lawgiver. Jesus understands that God's law is loving and wise and profitable and good. That's the fourth thing we see about God's law in this passage, that it's good, that it's good for us. Fifth and final thing we see about God's law in this passage, this is the main one is that God's law is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. God's law is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Did you notice how Jesus totally ups the ante in verse 4? Right? Jesus doesn't ask, is it lawful on the, on the Sabbath to heal or to leave unhealed? What does he say? He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? It's like, whoa, Jesus, who said anything about killing anyone? Like, what are, what are you doing? So some Bible scholars think that Jesus is here alluding to the famous passage at the end of Deuteronomy where God is calling Israel to choose whether or not they will obey God's law. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, God says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Can you hear the echo? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or to kill? It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, that choice that Israel faced at the end of Deuteronomy, the choice between faith and rebellion, right? the choice between obedience and disobedience, the choice between life and death, listen up, Pharisees, that's the choice you're making right now because I'm here. Are you going to side with Jesus Christ in his life-saving ministry, or will you oppose him? 
right? This is not just a technical question about how exactly to interpret the Sabbath. This is a life or death choice between embracing or opposing Jesus. By the way, that's the giant point that we skipped over as we talked about the first story with the grain. The way that Jesus talks about God's law, he makes it all about himself, right? In verse 25, he says, have you never read what David did? The anointed king whose mission triumphs over the final point of the ceremonial law? Don't you recognize that the anointed king has special privileges, says Jesus? There at the end of chapter 2, he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he adds, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So in light of how Jesus uses that phrase later, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, we should understand that as an allusion to Daniel chapter 7. In other words, Jesus is calling himself the king who fulfills mankind's destiny and receives authority over all peoples and languages and nations. So Jesus says, look, if the Sabbath was made for man, then the king of all humanity, me, right, I have authority to interpret the Sabbath command. And again, by alluding to Deuteronomy, Jesus is relating your decision to accept or reject him with your decision to accept or reject the entirety of God's law. The dead center of God's law is the person of Jesus Christ. When we understand the Bible properly, every part of it confronts us with the person, Jesus. I was reading earlier this week from the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Another dispute between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day about the Sabbath. And in the middle of that dispute, Jesus says these words. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Listen, the Pharisees appeared to be all about the Bible, but it did them absolutely no good because it did not drive them to faith in Jesus Christ as merciful Savior and Holy Lord. Friend, you can be as biblically knowledgeable and as serious about God's Word as you want, but it will do you absolutely no good if it does not drive you to faith in Jesus as merciful Savior and holy Lord. When we come to God's word, we need to come mindful that we are coming to the words of a personal God about his personal son who loves us and wants us to know him, to trust him, to love him. After Jesus asks his life or death question there in verse 4, uh, the text says that they respond in silence. Look with me at the end of our passage in verses 5 and 6. It says, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. There's a whole sermon right there, not this morning's sermon, on Jesus' anger and grief in response to the Pharisees' unbelief and lack of compassion. Notice the righteous anger of Jesus isn't haughty, it's grief-stricken. The text continues, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The Pharisees chose death on the Sabbath, no less. The Herodians mentioned there in verse 6, they were the political supporters of Herod Antipas. Uh, Suffice to say the Herodians were on the opposite side of the political spectrum from the Pharisees. But so deep was their animosity toward Jesus and his threat to their power, to their rule over their own lives, that they befriended their enemies in order to destroy him. Jesus and the Pharisees, both Jews, very serious about God's law. And for the Pharisees, the law had become a platform for a system of rules that fueled their own self-righteousness. The law had ceased to be a good gift from God for the benefit of his people. It had become an impersonal tool of power. And for Jesus, God's good law was a blessing and a pointer to salvation and life in himself. Is it any wonder that the Pharisees and Jesus disagreed about rest. Is it any wonder that they disagreed about Sabbath rest? Friend, listen, there are two ways that you can pursue rest for your soul. Not rest for your mind and body, like I hope you get over the long weekend, but rest for your soul such that you know that you're okay, that you have what you need, that you're enough that you have peace, that you're approved. There are two ways to pursue that rest. One way is by the works of the law. It's to take God's good and perfect law and to turn it into a means of earning his favor. You have rest because you do enough. You have rest because you're a good person. You have rest because you succeed in life. You have rest because you're a cut above everyone else. You have rest because your identity is rooted in how well you perform. You have rest because you earn it by works of the law. Friend, the Bible teaches that although God's law is good, because we are not, you cannot earn rest that way. By the works of the law, no man shall be justified. The other way to pursue rest for your soul is through faith in Jesus Christ. In Matthew's gospel, you know what he says immediately before he tells these two stories? You know what Jesus says immediately before these two controversies about the Sabbath? Jesus says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The other way to pursue rest is through faith in Jesus Christ who gives rest and peace and life and salvation as a free gift. The good news of the Bible is that although we have not done enough, Although we have not earned rest, although we are not good people, although we have not succeeded in loving God with all our hearts, God's Son, Jesus Christ, has done the work that we couldn't. He has lived in perfect obedience to the work of the law. He has died the death that we deserved for our disobedience to God's law. 
Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead over victory, in victory over death. And now if you will trust in him, if you will acknowledge that you fail to measure up to God's good law and you cry out to him for mercy by faith, he will give you rest. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will justify you before God through his own performance. And that is when you're able to cease from striving and earning and to receive God's law as a good gift and to learn to walk in obedience. Let's pray that God would work that in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the rest of justification and peace with God and forgiveness of sins that you give through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have mishandled your law, the ways that we have failed to understand what it's for, what it's about, what it reveals about you and about us. Lord, we pray that your law would drive us to Jesus, both as merciful Savior and as Holy Lord, whose rules are for our good. Lord, for those who don't know you, give them rest for the first time this morning in salvation. For those who do know you, Lord, produce in us humble acceptance of your law as a good gift from our Father. Lord, teach us to walk in your ways, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.